Uh, the Lord be with you, bread of life. This is the third Sunday in Advent, Gaudete, um, joy. I'll mention that again later in the sermon. Halfway through our journey to the Feast of the Incarnation, we're in a season of waiting. I begin today with a question. How do you suffer? In other words, what does it look like? You imagine yourself in suffering. Right? Do you um, resist it? Do you resent it? Do you try and avoid it? Um, or do you accept it? Do you try and grow from it? I admit it's humbling to look at moments of suffering in life that expose what it's like when things aren't going the way we expect them. This year, this season, many of us have suffered in a variety of ways. So we can think about what it looked like, what it looks like for us when we suffer as a part of our human condition. We'll enter into this today with um, uh, the figure Henry Nouwen. I've mentioned before, a Catholic priest and writer. Uh, he was Dutch by birth, and he wrote 40 books on the spiritual life. And so Nouwen, when he moved to the, to the U.S., he, he taught for about 10 years at Yale, and then he moved to Harvard. And then he spent um, the last years of his life working in large communities, which are homes for the mentally and physically disabled. And so he was a person who lived amidst great suffering, he wrote a book um, in the 70s um, that's still very timely uh, called The Wounded Healer. And he, he's writing to clergy, to pastors, who feel like their words of hope, of the gospel, don't um, have roots. They don't um, uh, help and minister to those in the churches who are in people in suffering. They no longer bring comfort. And so Nowen begins this book by trying to diagnose why the gospel, why our Christian preaching, why scripture doesn't help us in moments of suffering. And he gives three reasons in the book, which will be the topics of my next three sermons. So Advent 3, Advent 4, and then Christmas Eve. These kind of unfolding themes. And here's what they are, um, and we'll come back to them each week. The first is the um, historical dislocation. Okay, historical dislocation. By that, um, now it means that we no longer, we uh, struggle to find ourselves living meaningfully in a sense of single definitive history. Like there's this confident path of movement of history to some end. It feels far more fragmented to us. The second is um, ideological fragmentation. So this big word, but he means by that that we don't have a comprehensive sense of moral truth. We pick ideas of, as off of a, a shopping list, things that we like, but we, we don't bring ourselves around and have a sense of a moral good. We're very pragmatic in our sense of right and wrong. And the third thing he says is we've gone in search, humanity in general, our generation, in search of new meanings of immortality. Right? This life is short, and so people are motivated. They live by meaning of immortality, something that goes beyond life. And we've gone looking for things like work and relationships, as, as a, a source of immortality. So those are the three sermons, but we begin with this one of historical dislocation that Nouwen describes for us. And you can imagine um, how this comes about, how we feel ourselves to be historically dislocated. Nouwen mentions kind of the beginning of this. We, we live through these two great wars, and at the end of them, we have this kind of entrenched um, east-west conflict that the two great wars have not brought peace to humanity. We enter a civil rights movement that doesn't finish its work. It doesn't resolve our social problems. We begin to see a growth and a wealth gap in our country. We have these kinds of um, ostracized political parties. In our own days, this kind of unfolds. We've got 
um, increasing sense of belligerence, of opposition. We have COVID. We have uh, tyrants all over the world. We have poverty and suffering. We have climate change. I mean, you just begin to stack these things up and it's very difficult to think, oh yeah, history is progressing along to some meaningful point. And that's really important because if it's not moving towards something, it's very difficult to have purpose in life, to exercise creativity. And so this is the first thing that Nouwen mentions. Here enters for us John the Baptist in John chapter 1. And John speaks into this moment with these words. Um, I am the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Okay, so what John's doing here is more than um, simply saying, you know, it's Easter or it's Christmas or it's New Year. He's not signaling a holiday. John is very distinctly saying, this is the culmination of human history. This is the moment. So those words that John is saying is Isaiah 40. It begins Mark's gospel also. So this is John's gospel we're in today. But it's that way that the gospel writers are trying to help us realize this figure, this God-man born in this time, this is the peak culmination, the peak moment of human history that has come upon us. As um, the passage in Isaiah 40 that John quotes unfolds, it reaches to this passage of the servant, the servant that's being imagined in Isaiah 40 to 66. And it says in Isaiah 61, uh, this is the year of the Lord's favor. The the slave will be set free, the blind will have sight, the prisoner will be let go. There's this um, culminating vision of peace, of um, a lack of oppression, of unity amongst humanity, of the poor and the sick being fed. That's John's vision. And the nations gather to it. That's why I said it's not just a holiday that John's talking about. He is saying when he speaks out at the River Jordan and baptizes, this is the moment of all history. Now, we need to think about the fact that um, it's not any more likely that John's audience would have grasped it just because they were Jewish than we were. The Jews in that day, it has been centuries and centuries since they've had their kingdom in their temple. You know, they've got this um, living under oppression, the Persians, and then they're now they're living under um, Roman rule. They don't live freely. Pretty much all of their political reader, leaders are corrupt. Um, half of their religious leaders are corrupt. And so they're living in a time when John says, oh yeah, look, this is the culmination of time. They probably was met with as much cynicism as it is in our day. But there was deep hope, a deep need, and that's John's message to us today that he speaks in the moment that the culmination of history has come because God Almighty, the creator of the world, is going to take on flesh. And John says, I saw him, and I saw the Spirit of God descend upon him. And that, for John, transforms his life, and he begins to call people to be baptized into this, into the culmination of history. I mentioned that fact that we don't feel ourselves to be a part of an unfolding historical narrative. And John says, be baptized into it, because I tell you I saw the Lord baptized, and I saw the Spirit descend. This is the invitation for us in Advent, that this history that causes us to suffer, that bewilders us, that gives us anxiety, the political, social world around us. And we're baptized again to say this history 
that culminated in Christ, God himself came and took all of that darkness and suffering upon his flesh. That moment changes our sense of history. So that's first, this is the culmination of history. Advent reminds us of that. But two, when that happens, you can see that it transforms our suffering. It changes the way that we engage the anxiety and the difficulties that we face in this world. Henry Nouwen in his book says, you know, our own age, we're inundated. This is even before the internet. He said, we're inundated with mass media, with information, with rumors of wars, with conflict, with national divisions. He's living in the midst of the Cold War. And he says, we, we tend to face that with apathy and boredom. Right? We don't meet the world naturally. He says, the natural Christian life goes into moments of anxiety and suffering and then to joy, and anxiety and suffering and then to joy. But because of our cultural condition, we tend to just coast through flat apathy and boredom. And we fill in the spaces with entertainment and with work and music or sex or whatever it is to dull our senses to the lack of sense of meaning. And now and says, if we re-root ourselves in that meaningful sense of history, now in the moments of our depth and our suffering, we can invite God in to bring joy and give meaning to our suffering. And that's precisely what happens in our psalm today, Psalm 126. We sing it today also in our song. And it's this unique psalm because it combines suffering with joy three times. You know, those who go out weeping will come back rejoicing. Those who go out weeping, carrying the seed with them, they says, will come back with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. This is a pattern. It's a very short psalm. But if you can um, discern what's happening in the psalm, it begins with a testimony. God has done great things for us. Oh, the nations say, God has done great things for Israel. But it's a memory. It's a memory of the past that Israel draws upon to remember that God will do great things for those in suffering. He hears our cries. And so Israel, now in a new moment of suffering, can look back at a culminating moment in history and find joy. Because we know that God does not waste suffering. We know, especially for us who are not the Jews and who have Christ, that he's taken that suffering and owned it and claimed it and promised to heal it forever. And we can invite that Lord Christ into our suffering to give it meaning, to allow it to pass in its journey from anxiety back to joy and hope. Now, and says in another book, when we invite God into our moments of difficulty and suffering, we ground our life in joy and hope. You see, when we invite God into that moment, rather than resenting him or wondering what he's doing, we said, God, be near especially Christ to be near. Christ, you suffered. You know our sorrows and our wants. Be with me in this moment. And as soon as we do that, the meaning that comes, the redemptive hope that comes, brings joy. That's the natural pattern that should happen. And Advent seeks to renew that. We ground ourselves in the culmination of human history. We learn how to work through our suffering. And then third, my last point, we become like John, witnesses of the glory that we have seen. It's not enough simply to know how to deal with our suffering. 
We're meant to be witnesses. This should so transform our life, we should be able to go out to the nations. Twice it says that, this vision in Isaiah 61, the, the blind shall see, the slaves, the, 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 bond, the bonds shall be released, the imprisoned shall go free. They shall declare the year of the Lord's favor and the nations shall come. They shall see righteousness and peace come out. It's a gathering of this separated and divided humanity that's coming to the nations. And it began with John the Baptist and it's gone through thousands of witnesses until you and I believed. And now we are baptized into that testimony. We are witnesses. We bear the truth to the nations. We're surrounded by a world always in suffering. In this season of isolation, there is sadness and anxiety, despair, economic, social, spiritual, personal, marital. And we are to the world that source of joy. It's a term I've used before, I think, in a sermon. We are the non-anxious presence in the anxious world that allows people to root themselves again in some meaningful sense of history, some meaningful sense of hope. We can't alone be comforted. It is our job to comfort, to be people of mercy, to find those in the world who need words of hope. But there's more than simply a bearing of hope into the world. There's a bearing of truth. So that's John's point. Baptism that he's doing at the River Jordan isn't just a cleaning ceremony. It's a moment of repentance. This Jesus who comes is not a sheer uh, thin or uh, um, uh, soft, warm blanket. He's the king. He's the moral ruler of the universe. And before we meet him, we repent and make sure we're ready to meet him because he comes to judge the earth, as the creed tells us. He's not a pansy. He's not a pushover. He reigns over this world, and he has paid for its sin. And when he comes, we ought to be ready morally to meet him and to call the nations to do so as well, to bow before the king as he comes. It's a good measure for yourself. Can you name something in your life where your beliefs or your conduct run contrary, they run upstream to the culture and its current? Is there anywhere where you're opposed or made fun of or despised, where friendships are tense? because you stand for some truth that the culture does not like. The church today has become very peaceful. We love, we have love, we have the gospel, we have hope, and we go out into the culture. And it's very easy for me, for you, to simply move along with that current and never be opposed. A study this week, a friend passed on to me, a Barna poll they do through Arizona um, Christian University. You can look these up. This is a very recent poll, but it has a, a list of statistics, but i just name a couple. First is that over 50% of Christians surveyed, now this is mainline and Catholic and Protestant, um, don't believe in moral absolutes. I mean, this is insane, but they don't, we don't believe in moral absolutes. There's no moral truth, right? You just define it for yourself. 75% of those surveyed believe that humans are basically good. We're basically good. We're morally good people. 75% of Christians believe that. I mean, I don't know who they're living around, what world they're watching, what news they're seeing. But this is the kind of culture we have. 60-something percent don't read their Bible daily. I'm probably okay with that. There needs to be a whole renewal in knowing how to read Scripture. But 
part of the result of that is that scripture and the doctrines of the truth of the church don't define us. The culture does more and more. And so we get along with people. But that's the test of Advent. Come be baptized with John. Do you stand up for anything of moral truth that puts your friendships, that puts you against the current of the culture? Because if you don't, you have to wonder if you're being baptized into John's baptism. They would kill John, and then they would kill his Jesus, and then they would kill his Paul, and they would kill his Peter. There ought to be a reckoning for us in this moment of Advent. Do you stand for truth? We ought to come to that baptism and be washed and say, God, purify me. Make me winsome. Make me loving as I make truth known. But may it be your truth. Today, friends, I invite you into Gaudete, joy. In the midst of waiting and suffering for the incarnation, may he give us that hope in the midst of suffering that we would rejoice even in moments of darkness and that we would be lights and witnesses to a world that so need to meet our Lord. Amen, amen.